to capture and suspend pure joy. And I said, not a joy that excludes sorrow. I'm talking about real joy, not sentimentality, not feel good. Just because so, it's so easy to capture and suspend darkness because it's everywhere. I mean, anybody can, you know, have a cup of coffee and a cigarette and do the Faulkner visage and write dark stuff, right? But the this business of being able to, to create a piece of music that as soon as it starts, you just you're just in the rainbow and you're in there until the piece is done. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family, and part two of my interview with Eric Funk, musician, conductor, composer, and professor of music at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana. We begin this part of our podcast with the story of how Eric was inspired to write a unique violin concerto titled The Violin Alone, in which a solo violinist not only plays the violin part in the concerto, but he uses his violin to mimic the parts of all the other instruments in the orchestra. Quite a feat for composer and musician alike. So tell me about this, the genesis of the idea for violin alone. Basically, a couple of years back, we were doing a symposium on Mendelssohn and Mendelssohn's music. And the School of Music at Montana State University hired a violinist from Hungary, a guy named Vilmos Ola, whose last name is Halo backwards, by the way, not lost on me, um, to come and do the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. While he was in town, he and I met, and he was doing a solo recital, and I went to hear the recital, and it's one of the best recitals I'd ever heard. But what was poignant for me in the recital was that there were extended sections where the pianist would drop out and it was just solo violin. And his tone color was so kaleidoscopic and his timbral range was so huge that I started hearing him almost like a full orchestra. He was getting so many different colors. And I started watching where he was positioning his bow. And he seemed to have as many as 14 different positions that he played between the bridge and the, and the fingerboard. So he wasn't even going to Sul Tasto or Sul Ponticello. He was just like getting a very unique sound. So at the end of the concert, I walked up to him rather excitedly and said, I would like to write a piece for you. And I would like it to be a concerto for the violin alone, meaning that in real time you would play the solo part and the orchestra part. And then when you're playing the orchestra part, you have to emulate the sounds of the instruments in the orchestra. And he smiled and in his broken English re, uh, responded, I'd love to see that piece. I'd, and so I think he had no idea that the rush of inspiration was going to come through as quickly as it did. He arrived back in Budapest and six days later, a three movement concerto arrives from me written on two staves where the top line is the solo violin part and the bottom line is the orchestra part. And in little tiny parentheses, it says oboe, clarinet. French horn, two flutes, timpani, trumpets, fanfare, brass fanfare. Um, and meanwhile, here's the solo line going. And um, he said when he pulled it out of the envelope, he was looking at it and he was just like, 
oh my gosh. And he, and he said, as he looked at it, he thought, I don't know if this is possible. And then he started looking at it and thought, it is possible. And I thought, theoretically, it's possible. Whether or not a human being in their right mind is going to do it is another question. Um, I applied for and received a grant to travel to Budapest, and I spent nine days with him, 12-hour days. I don't think we've said maybe 50 words in all this time, because we're just in the music. He speaks English. I don't speak Hungarian. I have German. He has German. But we just stayed with kind of a... We didn't need to talk much, because we were just buried in the music. And basically, we were trying to figure out how we were going to annotate or clarify exactly how we were going to get that sound, because obviously a violin makes a sinusoidal wave or a sine wave, and an oboe is a pulse or a square wave, a clarinet's a triangle wave, trumpet is a sawtooth wave, and you can't change the waveform. But I could have him do unusual things like pull his bow from Sul Tasto towards Sul Ponticello and come across the instrument at an angle and have a timbral shift in the color because of the amount of the string that was vibrating and where it was vibrating. The angle of his bow was using some ricochet and some uh, legno battuto uh, harmonics, a lot of extended idiomatic techniques that are just like, some of them we had to just make up terminology for because they didn't really exist. But the idea was, how are we going to get this sound? And he had uh, the X-Flesh Stradivarius available. He had a Gemignani that he was playing. And we were trying different violins to see which was going to be the most perfect instrument. The Strad was too soft uh, for what we wanted. So he, uh, we got through this after nine days. We had to say goodbye. I thought I was going to have a total emotional breakdown. It was so hard to say goodbye because we'd found this connection, this musical connection. It was like another permutation of Tchaikovsky and Auer or Brahms and Joachim or Shostakovich and Rostropovich, where a composer and a musician meet and there's a simpatico, there's this oneness that happens. Or maybe uh, for the general audience, a better example would be a playwright and an incredible actor who can read the sentence so perfectly that their understanding the motivation of the character is inherent. You don't have to coach them at all. So we went back with a PBS crew uh, to film the premiere of the piece. And I explained uh, the title uh, is, the technical title is Vili, which is his nickname. His real name is Vilmos, which would be like William in, uh, in English. And Vili would be like Billy. So Vili, colon, Concerto for the Violin Alone, Opus 109. So the Opus 109 is just where it is in the catalog. I think I'm on, with this new piece I'm doing now, it's 136. But anyway, concerto, as I said earlier, comes from concertare, which means in, in Italian to do battle, and then it also means uh, to join together in Latin. Concerto for the violin alone, which means he's all by himself. He's the orchestra, he's the soloist, because he is a concert violinist, but also a concert master of the Hungarian Radio Symphony Orchestra. He understands the full orchestra, so his ability to realize the orchestra from his stand in that role comes into concert with his ability as a soloist with 28 concertos memorized all the way from Bach and Mozart and Beethoven all the way through 
Schoenberg and Penderecki was one of my teachers. And now this piece. And we talked about when he played the piece, he said he couldn't play any other piece on a concert if he did this piece because it entirely denuded him because he had to do battle with and join together with himself. It was the full compass of everything that he possibly could do. It was spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally exhausting by the time he got to the last pace. So we do this performance in Budapest to a packed house. It was a wonderful moment when he, when he finished the piece, the audience exploded and then they rushed the stage and they wanted to see what this music was because it's all spread out on multiple stands and they wanted to see how it was that he had just done what he had done because they're like experiences this, thing, uh, this this piece of music which is phenomenal and in my mind it was like banister or jim ryan breaking the four minute mile which we remember they had said human beings could not run the mile in under four minutes and then the brit and an american do it and suddenly now professional runners do it all the time when Paganini wrote his caprices and his uh, pieces for the violin, everybody said they were unplayable. Um, as we know now, he had a neurological disease, and one of the side effects was an increased manual dexterity. And so it gave him this phenomenal ability to do things that were beyond the, the norm. Nowadays, you go to any orchestra concert and listen to the violin players down there warming up, and they're playing excerpts from the Paganini Caprices. So everybody's breaking the four minute mile. And so this idea was, if one person can be the soloist and the orchestra, then the 96 members of an orchestra can do the same thing. And you have 96 orchestras in your orchestra. So it changes the way that we write for an orchestra. If I can go to my flute section, and now they're the orchestra, they're approaching their instrument differently than they would as just one member of the group. So they are the individual and they are the collective at the same time, which was the, the joy and the, and the fun of the piece. What violin did he finally settle on? And give me a little bit of the background of the violin that he felt he was able to use to realize this piece. Well, it was because the piece is so demanding and so exacting, he had to go on a hunt and he has a, a violin maker in Budapest. Uh, that he's worked with for years, who's helped him with the instruments that he has available to him. He went through 43 violins to find the perfect violin. And he calls it a Hungarian Stradivarius. I don't think it's actually a Strad. I think it's similar in construction. I've never actually looked in to see what it is, but it's um, it's an amazing instrument because he can roll his the tip of his ring finger an infinitesimal, almost immeasurable amount and completely change the microtonality. And he can get a different overtone structure, which can emulate an instrument that without that kind of attenuation, you wouldn't be able to achieve. Plus him being who he is, he's, he's a freak of nature. We did shoot some footage where we're shooting 1500 frames a second. And so you can see the string is going back and forth like a suspension bridge. It looks like it's moving feet and the rosin is coming off the strings. It looks like he's playing in the middle of a forest fire. Smoke is coming up in front of his face. And you can see the, the attenuation of him turning the bow to get a little bit different edge or the angle or the exact position. He's, he's annotated the score to exactly where he needs to be in these 
different places that he approaches the playing, and then he's traversing through them and the angle. I mean, just everything where he is is how how near is he to the frog? Is he sur la pointe? You know, with all these sort of technical things about where you are with the bow. But then not only does he go through forty three violins. He goes through all these bows to find the perfect bow to go with the perfect violin, and his ridiculous ability to achieve this. And he's the guy. He's the guy right now who can play it. Uh, there's another guy uh, in New York who recorded it, who played it. He plays the notes. Um, he doesn't achieve the the color wheel, the kaleidoscopic color wheel that Vili does. So it that will remain the charge. And there are going to be players who just want to do it for the virtuosic nature of, I can play this piece. But again, it's not about the musician, it's about the music. And so seeing Vili disappear in the second movement, oh, the audience was crying because I, I used Vili as his name, but also as Papa, because I he opened his violin case when he was here, and I see pictures of his children, and I'm thinking he's 2,000 miles away, hearing their voices calling out. And so I use this dee 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 in the second movement as sort of a motive, fractal, to build the piece. And it's just heartbreaking because you just feel this whole thing is emerging. Once again, the entire piece being made of itself. It's quite remarkable. We'll have a, uh, a full one-hour PBS documentary in probably another four months that covers the entire event. And I was trying to capture a portrait of this man but I was also trying to capture Eastern Europe, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of history of being invaded, being oppressed. You can push people down, but you can't destroy the spirit. The folk tradition stays strong. In some of the cadenzas that Vili was playing at the recital I heard here, there were ridiculous gypsy-type moments, and so I use a lot of sort of gypsy-esque uh, more Romanian than Hungarian gypsy type moves, but um, the piece is very, very flashy. So it's it's got a lot of fiddle property to it, in addition to being a very complex 21st century uh, classical piece. What's his own background? He was a child prodigy, and um, he won the Hungarian national competition solo violin when he was 11. And again, when he was 15, and again, when he was 18, went to the Liszt Academy, has played all over the world. It's one of the sort of beautiful secrets about our connection is that he lives in Hungary. So he'll go and play in Israel or Paris or Moscow or London or New York. And um, he'll blow everybody's minds and the critics are just going out of their minds with praise about who is this crazy brilliant violinist. And then he goes back to Budapest and he all but disappears because he grew up when the communists were running the country and they marketed him. So he has no idea. There's no real skill set to have a web page or to have a, a life in social media. So one of the things that I'm hoping that will happen with this piece is that it's going to expose him in a broader sense um, through a very unusual, it just features him. It's I Taylor made this thing to this guy. You'll love there was a moment where he had to reach down to this low B flat and it was so difficult. It was just treacherous. And I said, finally, I said, Vili, let's just kill this note because it's, it's just too difficult. And he said, don't kill any notes, kill me. And I thought, there it is. There's the spirit, you know, of that, of that kind of artist. So 
When I was there, we were doing the documentary about the piece and about him. And he said, could we include um, one of my mentors, Tomasz Vachery? And Tomasz Vachery is like the world-renowned expert pianist on the music of Chopin and Liszt, and also as conductor of the Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, made them famous, English orchestra. I thought Vachery was long dead, to be honest. And I said, you, you want to bring Vachery in for an interview? That'd be great. So we're in the marble room at Esterhazy Palace, where Beethoven taught the royal children to play the piano. And we're interviewing Tomasz Vachery, who is suddenly talking to my camera crew about Karl Popper and Carlos Castaneda and finding your perfect place in the universe. And once you find that spot holding that edge and you know complete joy, it's just like my young camera crew, like they're like transfixed with this guy. And uh, he and Vili and, and Bashri are going on a five continent, 78 concert tour next year. And he'll perform the concerto for the violin alone all over the world in addition to a whole bunch of Hungarian music by Kodai and and uh, maybe some Veresh Bartok, you know, and it's going to be quite amazing. Did doing this piece, composing it, certainly be involved in the performance of it, in any fundamental way or quirky way change your understanding of that instrument, the violin? Yeah, it, because I'm not a violinist. Um, I had very good teachers, and so... Their insistence was that you understood, you understood its capabilities and its potentialities as full as you possibly could. You had to have a working knowledge of it so you knew what was just dumb, you know. So you had to play it well enough so I could play well enough to realize if I'm writing really complicated double stops or, or triple stops or arpeggiandos, you know, that this is actually achievable on the instrument. But writing something that was this crazy, this far out, this is such a quantum leap. And then having somebody with the courage and the skill to be able to pull it off, it changed everything because I realized that one has to write what one has to write. You know, the music that that we composers hear isn't sounds that we have on the earth. And so you have to figure out, okay, with the instruments that we have available, how am I going to make those sounds? So when I'm hearing with my mind's ear, I'm not hearing a Western civilization symphony orchestra. I'm just hearing sounds. So when I get in and say, okay, how can I make that sound? Which was one of the advantages of my study with Pendereski because he was using idiomatic sounds and very unusual proportional notation systems to achieve these sounds that some of them almost sound electronic. And I haven't used a lot of them, but I know how to do it if I ever need that palette. To go back to your painting metaphor and the brush and the and the canvas. But it was exciting because then when I did a the TED talk about the violin alone, I was talking about the next piece that I would try to write, which I've actually finished but I haven't gotten into clear score yet, is a double concerto for two string orchestras and violin where everybody in both orchestras are a soloist and the orchestra. <laughs> so it's like ridiculous. It's just totally ridiculous. The question that comes up from the, there's always going to be naysayers and skeptics in the world is, why don't you just use a flute and an oboe and a trumpet? I mean, why are you doing this? Why don't you just have him play with an orchestra? Well, it's not about the product. It's about the process. And what it's done to him in terms of who he's become through the lens of the piece 
and then what it's done to me as the person who had the honor of being able to put it on the page and then work with him and you know build this the plans to create this sound sculpture that he alone at this point can build it's gonna it's gonna be thrown out there to the to the violinists of the world and everybody else is gonna say i want to can you do that for the cello or other composers to say well i want to try that because somebody has to do it first right go into that territory pioneer it and then everybody wants to say well let me take a crack at that and see what I do. That's the joy of it. Let's listen now to a brief portion of the Violin Concerto, The Violin Alone, composed by Eric Funk and performed by Hungarian violinist Vilmos Ola. Eric and I wind up our conversation with some more philosophical meanderings. As you may have gathered if you listen to our podcast, such meanderings with interesting people like Eric Funk are for me a source of great pleasure. I hope you enjoy them as well. There's an image in the I Ching. The I Ching, for those who don't know, is an ancient, uh, quite ancient Chinese form of divination. Originally, it was looking at the... Uh, the lines on a tortoise shell. It's really not how to tell the future. The idea was it tells you what's happening in the present moment, and that implies what the future will be. So later it was throwing yarrow stalks or coins. And um, I love Jung. He did the introduction to the probably the best translation of the original uh, Chinese, first through German and then into English. And he said he discovered it when he was 70 years old. 
And had he discovered it was 20, he might have spent his whole life studying the I Ching. He said he couldn't understand how it worked. It's a copy that I have. And I think, you know, it's, I was very fortunate in my life to spend some time and collaborate with John Cage, who was, we were talking about silence earlier, and I finally got to be good enough friends where I could ask him about his notorious piece of music, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which is Nothing Happens. It's called Silence. And I said, is this a shtick? I mean, is this? And he said, no, I couldn't find any. He said, I desperately wanted some silence. And the only way I figured I was going to get it was to compose some. And he said, you know, it's never been performed perfectly. But John had this thing where, because he was so um, engaged in the concept that there's no such thing as random, at the end of his life, he was composing using the I Ching. And he was, he was you know, doing hexagrams, but he was assigning pitch to all this stuff. So even though it felt like chance, he and I had a two and a half hour argument. It was hysterical in retrospect. He insisted that he's working on a very important piece of music and the phone rings and he has to answer it. And I said, no, you don't have to answer it. You can take it off the hook or you can unplug it. He said, no, you can't do that. It has to be plugged in and it has to be on the hook because it's not random that it's ringing. And we we went, you know, I was a young guy, right? But it was just, it was so perplexing to me that he was such a Frankenstein of academia, that he just, as a philosopher, he couldn't let go of the purity. He'd, he'd moved away from Plato into Aristotle at such a ridiculous <laughs> ramped up element. And now he was into the beauty, uh, the beauty of the I Ching is that it does what we were just talking about. It runs parallel to truth and it's so beautifully written that you can randomly open to a page and it's like randomly opening to Shakespeare. For some people, Beauty the Bible. unfolds. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, and it just it just unfolds and it's endlessly deep. So regardless of where you are in your developmental stages over the course of your life, the more you go there, the more you find. And it was there all the time, but you didn't realize it was there, right, until you're old enough as Jung at 80. My, my wife is a clinical psychologist and she founded the Friends of Jung uh, here in Montana, and she's quite a Jungian. So I've been inundated. We have a copy of the Red Book in our living room, and yeah, we could go on for years. So I lived in West Virginia for a number of years. First, I did this back-to-land thing when I was in my 20s. That's where I fell in love with the fiddle. But then came back later and founded a children's museum in Beckley, West Virginia, and I, it was great work, and I loved doing it. But I was in these rural areas, often in small towns, and the only restaurants you know, there weren't many restaurants, and every one of them had a jukebox. So you're going to eat, and there'd be music playing, and it'd make you anxious or fast or whatever it was, you know. So, cause, and then you go over to the owner and say, could you turn that off while I'm eating? I'm making money. You know, I'm in a small town. i got to make money. So my wife and I came up with this thing, which we never did pursue. We should have. And we called it the silent record. It was four and a half minutes, and it, it was silent. But the thing was, it was very democratic, because I could go drop three, four quarters in there, and I can have that silent record play as many times as I want while I'm eating. That was my right, see? And we were going to have people who, you know, had this in their jukebox, have a little sticker on their window, say, silence is golden. We we have the silent record. So you could go in and you could buy silence. If somebody else can buy Fleetwood Mac, you could buy silence. <laughs> in a small town, that's not a small thing when you want to go out and eat. Yeah. And have an environment that's, at least to me, was uh, more survivable. It beats, beats walking out of... Albertson's with a bunch of bananas singing Monday, Monday, and he didn't even, don't like the song, and it was pumped in, and he didn't even hear it. <laughs> you walk into your car and go like, oh, they pumped it into the system.
does the artist come across with the idea that I will show you what's going on? My daughter calls it um, outrage pornography. You go on the internet. It's like, you know, you have real pornography and then you have outrage pornography. All these sites that are just played to you and just say, oh, can you believe that? My God, look what they did. Look what they're doing in the environment. Look what those Democrats are doing. As if we're just telling you what's going on. Well, I think a lot of artists do that. You know, here, here's the way the world really is. And ultimately, there seems to be a, a decamping from the idea that somehow or another there's joy or there's something ennobling that the artist is going to put in there. And maybe that's the thing. Maybe there's no evidence of this, but the artist says, okay, I will take on this. I will give you something that somehow or another is also going to say, the world, there is a force. There is love. There is something about this often dreadful experience that we should believe in. And that moves it perilously close or appropriately close to what we have thought of as religious or sacred practice. I oftentimes will dress like Paddington Bear. I'm sort of famous at this school for my three-piece suits and my watch fob. And and uh, so usually in the first or second class period, I'll say, all of you, I'd like you, and there's like 300 people sitting in front of me, I'll say, I'd like you to all draw a circle in the air. And they're like, are you kidding me? I say, come on, just I know it seems stupid, just do this. And so they're all like, and some of them are like, not going to do it very publicly, <laughs> right? I have a lot of engineers, and the old joke is an extroverted engineer looks at the other person's shoes. But anyway, uh, so they're all drawing the circle in the air, and I said, now pretend like these gates are closing down on it, and your circle is going to become an ellipse. And so now they're ellipting, and I say, keep going all the way down until it's a straight line. And there seems to be a black and white, right and wrong, good and bad. It seems to be polarized. So my job as your teacher is this is black and this is white and we've closed the circle. My job is to get us to open the circle back up. And if this is black and this is white, then everything between black and white is a different shade of gray all the way until you get to white. And the more articulations we can do in that gray, the better off we're going to be. That's what we do as scholars. We have to, and it's not to create ambivalence, but it moves us closer to center than being left of center, because we think we're talking about the truth, and we think we know the truth, and we think we're saying the truth. But we have we have the inability, we jumped to this conclusion, and we polarized the thought, which is kind of what we've been talking about. And I think that uh, the public shaming that's going on in the media, in the like uh, social media, where they try to take something and vilify it, or where you have an artist come in and announce what the truth is, it's it's a very deadly game, because the human swarm is a scary thing. And if you get people to jump on a bandwagon, because it's so easy to have a bumper sticker mentality and just go around with this, this is right. And I sometimes think that people who might have a better story to tell are intimidated about being bold enough to tell it if they truly do believe in joy or beauty. I'm starting to sound really old school. No, no, this is abstract. But, you know, I was telling a, f a friend of mine, because, you know, I just dodged a couple of bullets, and the doctors were saying, boy, you're a very lucky to be alive guy. And so somebody wrote to me uh, recently, actually, my violinist friend in, in Budapest, and he said, are you composing? That's the most important question to him, because we've actually shared more notes than words. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm writing a piece called Borrowed Time. And I said, this piece is 
has been my lifelong quest as a composer to capture and suspend pure joy. And I said, not a joy that excludes sorrow. I'm talking about real joy, not sentimentality, not feel good. Just because it's so easy to capture and suspend darkness because it's everywhere. I mean, anybody can, you know, have a cup of coffee and a cigarette and do the Faulkner visage and write dark stuff, right? But the this business of being able to to create a piece of music that as soon as it starts, you just you're just in the rainbow and you're in there until the piece is done. It's a huge undertaking. And I said, you know, my point is that we don't like to talk about joy because it's an absolute and it makes people nervous. Like, well, well, your idea of joy, and we get into that whole subjective argument. But as I was pointing out to Vili, I think that had I not gone through what I'd just gone through, I wouldn't have the information that I need to listen to that far into the mystery and trust my skill set to be able to transcribe that. And I think I'm on it. I'm about 10 minutes in to the piece. And, um, uh, the funny part of, about it is that because when they put me in the MRI and I refused to have any headphones on, I noticed that all the numerics of the clicks and the bangs were prime numbers. So there'd be like, bop, 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 bop. There'd be like seven or there'd be 11 or 15. Boo, 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 boo. And so that's part of the piece as well. So while you've got this sort of suspended bliss, then suddenly there are these things that are like sectioned out and then suddenly it just unfolds and this light comes through. It's just, it's a pretty amazing uh, project, but it's, um, it's a funny thing that happens when, uh, when you look into that, those doorways that all go the same place is that, I mean, obviously the first time I encountered anything like this, you take life less seriously and more seriously simultaneously because it's only the earth after all. Um, but there's also, if you're on borrowed time, if this is a coda, and you say, okay, how do I want things to be? Because the after I had the endarterectomy, and they saved my life with that, and then five days later, I'm back in ER with post-surgery seizures. And the head of ER comes in, and he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he said, so if I told you you had two weeks to live, would you go to work? It was such a funny question, and part of me wanted to say, well, if it was composing music, because that doesn't really work, it's raison d'etre, you know, I mean, that, right? We would do that, which we must do, like you guys would do your, what you do, because it's your life. And I love, of course, the double meaning that's not, is quite obvious, is we're all on borrowed time. Of course we are. None of us are getting out of here alive. No. And then there's the architectonic piece to this, if you look at the structural uh, beauty of borrowing time and doing time Dopplers because time is an illusion anyway. And so even if I do it structurally and I borrow beats from this measure and move them over here and I'm actually borrowing time and I'm doing additive and, and subtractive things with time, but I'm messing around with time Dopplers and completely screwing up relativity in terms of what seems that it's taken a long time, which has taken hardly any time or I've gone and played a concert and I come out and a hundred years later, or mm -hmm. I've been in Brigadoon yeah. 
for a day, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. It is about time. That There's two types of time, at least I think, you know, what I call logos time and mythos time. And Mm -hmm. we live in them simultaneously. Logos time is the time, you know, hopefully my airplane's taking off on logos time today, right? And I know when to be there. That's really logos time. Mythos time is this other idea of time that it expands and contracts. And uh, I think we know that in dreams, when we dream at night, you know, our time has a whole different quality and character. So, yeah, I love this idea. And crooked fiddle tunes, by the way, I don't know what you were saying about borrowing beats. There's a thing in the Appalachian fiddle tradition called crooked tunes. And mostly it's because people were so far back in the mountains, there was no standard idea of how many measures there should be. And square dancing is more open uh, by the way, to just the, the calling isn't tied in like you would in contra music. And it's almost that New England structure uh, where now you get in the Southern Appalachian thing and you have a much stronger black influence in the rhythmic structure. And then you have this Scotch-Irish-Celtic thing that has a kind of a mystical background. So these tunes tend to become uh, irregular. So many measures in the A part, but half those measures in the B part or an extra phrase on. And there's an, And people who love this music me particularly, um, we love those crooked tunes. It's it's almost the signature of the, of the tradition. And it drives guitar players crazy when they're first coming into it. So what's going well, on here? Commercial players get confused, but like in my charter for the violin alone, it's changing meter all the time. And if you look at it, you go like, oh my God, this is so complicated. But the truth of it is, none of us are doing anything in 4-4 four, four time. You know, we're all, the way that we breathe, the way that we move, the rhythm of our own lives is, if when you try to map that out, and it becomes real, it's very natural. So when I took uh, 150 kids from Montana to Carnegie Hall to perform a piece that I wrote called the, From the Dreams of Montana Children, I have these kids singing with a professional orchestra in New York, and we get through the rehearsal, and the concert master comes and says, who are these kids? I mean, are these like the greatest singers on the West Coast? And I said, no, these are just elementary school kids who wanted to sing the piece, and Long story short, I'd sent a note out to all the principals in the state and said, have your kids write down, draw a picture of a dream that they had while they're sleeping. And on the flip side, have them write one sentence that says what the dream is about. So I had 1,800 pieces of children's art come in, which are just phenomenal. And I flip them over and I start writing these things down. I'm putting them in categories of nature, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, they have this big piece that they're going to do in New York. But I told their teachers, do not tell the kids that this is difficult because they're going to get scared of it. Just expect them to do it because it's very natural. And don't you get scared of it either. And so they taught these kids to do this, and it's changing meter every bar because it's just the natural way that you would say the line. And so the orchestra is professionally trained. Juilliard, Manhattan School, Oberlin, Peabody guys are like counting and dying, you know, playing their part. And these kids are just singing it like it's a piece of cake. And uh, and we get through the thing, and it's, it's just like those two things come together. So the Crooked Fiddle tune... Or as I was playing with a country band one time, and there are all these asymmetrical phrasings. And so I was talking to the lead singer, and I said, I'm, I'm not quite figuring out how this works. And he said, it's just when we need to breathe. He said, just do the lyric and breathe. And he said, you don't have to count. And I thought, that's it. That's when you need to breathe. So the crooked tune is just the natural tune. It's when we try to force it into the box that it gets problematic. Yeah, And maybe... maybe those tunes, I often think that many of those tunes came from uh, listening to nature. Very wonderful old-time fiddler, J.P. Fraley's passed away. I one time was doing this public radio show about family stories. So I was recording people their family stories. And I was going to fiddlers because I'm a fiddler, and they're just great storytellers. And oh, there's a tradition of that. They're colorful people because they were almost the uh, 
you know, the traveling shaman, you know, who came to your town with news and, and the fiddle under his arm is a portable instrument. So JP was great and a great storyteller. So, but I wasn't really asking him about music. I was asking him about his family stories and he had such funny stories about his father being baptized at the age of 90 and getting dropped out of a chair into a river and it's just great stuff from Eastern Kentucky. But also that's coal mining region, very tough. At one point in the interview, I said to him, um, what was it like in the 30s? during the Depression. And he just starts by saying, well, people were dying every day. The graveyard was getting filled up, but nobody would say they were dying of starvation. They're very proud people. They wouldn't say it, but that's what was going on. So he starts there, and then suddenly he segues within, and this was only in about a minute and a half to two minutes. He segues in the fact that his father did this job and that job to get by, and at one point managed to get owned a mill to grind, he said, grind the corn, grind that corn. And he said, and... Uh, and these men would show up, these farmers with their wagons and horses, and they'd have to wait their turn. And he said, and I'd be just a little kid. He said, I'd be watching them, and then they had chicken. They'd get a chicken, and they'd have their, their chicken fights. And who had the best chicken? He said, but then they'd pull out their banjos and fiddles. And he said, I just love that. And he said, and that mill would be turning, and that stream would be flowing, and that music would be just all around. And it was just, it was just special. It was just wonderful. And within a minute and a half, he had taken me from the darkest, Depression image to this inspiration for the music that would be his life. But you had the sound of the turning of the mill and that stream and the water and that irregular sound of nature, uh, which is probably not irregular. It's probably fractal, right? Just like, you know, when you look at trees, the way branches, you know, they, they even understand it. That's the most, the easiest way for nature to reproduce itself is through fractal mathematics. Well, wonder, certainly, I'm curious if in sound that has any bearing. Oh, totally. You know, I talk to my students about, if you start looking at, you can look at Bach from a fractal standpoint. You can really get into it with Beethoven and Brahms. But just taking a motive, a really small idea, and then all the permutations, it's all made of the one thing. So it's all basically the DNA, the fractal. It's all this one thing, and it all boils down to the one thing. And that's the, the beauty of the process. So I was just rem remembering being at this church camp and they wanted me to come in and do some music with the kids. Probably what they actually wanted me to do was bring my guitar in and sing some camp songs to them. But I had a completely different idea, which was way more fun. And I said, let's go outside and let's form a circle. And I said, what I'm going to do, and I'm going to count backwards from five. And when I get to zero, I want you to listen to what's going on and memorize the sound of nature and see how deep into the forest your ears can go. And I said, you're going to hear some bird that maybe every three seconds is doing its car. And this one over here is doing one every five. And they're going to go in and out of phase with each other. And it's going to seem like it's irregular. But the cyclical nature of this is going to create algorithms. And I said, not to get too mathematical on you, but it's a beautiful thing. And I said, because when we get done with this, we're going to go around and grab rocks and sticks. And we're going to come back in and we're going to play the piece that we all just heard. And you're going to play the part that you heard. That's your job. And so, I mean, they're like on fire. I go three, two, one, zero. For 20 minutes, you've got a group of junior high kids not making a sound, and they're just like transfixed. And so at like 20 minutes is done, and I say, okay, find some stuff. Let's go back in this fellowship hall. And they're like, and they just want to tell you, and I said, don't tell me. Play it. Let's, here we go. Three, two, <laughs> <laughs> they did it. They replicated this thing, which is, it is asymmetrical, but it's not. 
Um, we love to think of ecosystems, but I think it's a falsehood. I think we tend to look at too small of a period, as you were pointing out. It's much broader. I think it's beautifully organized and totally disorganized at the same time. Mm. It's beyond our knowledge base. Beyond our feeble powers, as yeah. it should be. And then you get to somebody, you know, like like a Beethoven or a Brahms, or if once you learn how to do it, you can go back and listen to Bach. Actually, one of my teachers, Sander Varish, made me take all of the, oh, it was such an arduous process, take all of the subjects of all of the Bach fugues, write them out in every single key, write the retrograde backwards, write the inversion upside down and the retrograde inversion upside down and backwards. And then he would defy me to go through the fugue and find something that wasn't one of those. And they were entirely made of themselves. And if you went further, they were entirely made of the fractal. Once you found out the seminal information, that was the entire piece, which is how he became such a remarkable improviser. He has to crank up music like there's no tomorrow because he's playing everything constantly at the Thomas Kirka and Leipzig, right? So he's writing shorthand uh, notes and figured bass so he can kind of remember his general plot of the harmonic movement. But basically, he's manipulating fractals and, and cyclic cyclical delivery of material. It's very beautiful. It's how I teach my students to write. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. I leave you now with a quote by the composer John Cage. I can't understand why people are frightened of new ideas. I'm frightened of the old ones. ¶¶